Well, if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 15. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, And he, that is Christ, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. This is the word of the living God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, your word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light in a dark place. Your word gives us guidance and direction. Your word does not just teach the truth. Your word is truth. So Lord, as we open your word this morning, as we talk about how your word equips and educates your saints in your church, help us, O God, by the Spirit of God, to be equipped and educated by your word, which is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, Reckless Faith, John MacArthur recounts the story of a woman who once wrote a letter to him giving her opinion on doctrine. MacArthur says, A woman once wrote to me to say she thought Christianity was fine, but personally she was into Zen. She liked to listen to Christian radio while she was driving because the music soothed out her karma. Occasionally, however, she would tune into one of the Bible teaching ministries. In her opinion, all the preachers she heard were too narrow-minded toward other religions. So she was writing several radio ministers to encourage them to be more broad-minded. God doesn't care what you believe, as long as you're sincere, she wrote. All religions lead ultimately to the same reality. It doesn't matter which road you take to get there, as long as you follow your chosen road faithfully. Don't be critical of the alternative roads other people choose. This letter received by John MacArthur is not just insightful into the religious heart of this woman, it is insightful into the religious heart of America today. As you look across the Christian landscape, as you peruse the shelf at the local Christian bookstore, 
as you listen to local Christian radio, one thing becomes abundantly clear. The importance of right doctrine is quickly vanishing. The one persistent theme that absolutely pervades the seeker-sensitive movement, TBN and the Crystal Cathedral, the purpose-driven church, the emerging church, is a total vacuum of sound theology, a complete lack of biblical doctrine. It is trip, trip, trendy and hip to say Christianity is all about how you feel, not about what you believe. Or it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it with all your heart. So is that true? Is Christianity all about what you feel and not what you believe? Is doctrine really important? Well, according to scripture, doctrine is important. In fact, it is so important that the church is to be distinguished by it. 1 Timothy 3.15 calls the church of the living God the pillar and support of the truth. In 1 Timothy 4.6, Paul tells Timothy to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. As we saw at the start of our series, true gospel doctrine or the preaching of the true gospel is a mark of the true church. Even more so when we talk about the purposes of the church One of the express purposes of the church is to educate the saints in life and doctrine. It is to equip the saints in life and doctrine. So in order for us to be a true church, in order for us to fulfill our purpose as a true church, we must get our doctrine right. We must preach and teach true gospel doctrine. True gospel doctrine is a distinctive of the true church. So this morning, as we progress in our series on the communion of the saints, we will be looking at equipping the saints, educating the saints. We will be looking at the importance of sound biblical doctrine, the priority of right Christian doctrine. We'll do so under four headings. First, understand the definition of doctrine for the true church. Understand the definition of doctrine for the true church. Now, the word doctrine is a term we tend to know a little bit about, and we tend to throw it around in our Christian lingo. But what exactly is meant by the term doctrine? When Grudem defines the concept of biblical doctrine as what the whole Bible teaches us today about some particular topic. So Grudem is saying that doctrine is simply a set of teachings from the Bible that we are to believe. Doctrine refers to the content of belief. Another way to understand doctrine is to begin with history. What actually happened at one point in time? Robert Duncan Culver says, first, Christianity has been rendered what it is by what God did a long time ago. But the events of biblical salvation history have meaning. 
these must be interpreted and are seminally interpreted in the same scriptures which report God's acts. This interpretation of history is known as doctrine. So what Culver is saying is there are three essential elements to biblical doctrine. First, biblical doctrine is rooted in historical events. We must start with historical events. We must start with historical acts. We must start with gospel events. Christianity is not like other religions. It's not ethereal or mystical. It is not a nebulous set of principles of living or 12 steps to a better afterlife. No, Christianity is based on history. Christianity is based on something that actually happened 2,000 years ago. Our faith, our religion, Christianity, is based on actual, real, historical events. Secondly, biblical doctrine is given a meaning and a significance. These events that happened 2,000 years ago are not irrelevant. They're not pointless. They're not insignificant. They're not random. No, quite the contrary. These events that happened 2,000 years ago have a meaning and a significance for us today. So what happened in the Middle East 2,000 years ago has a real personal meaning for you today living in Southern California in 2018. Thirdly, Biblical doctrine is interpreted for us by the scriptures. We must let the scriptures interpret the meaning of these historical acts. We must let the Bible interpret the significance of these historical events. The word of God is the ultimate authority to report and interpret the meaning and significance of gospel events. J. Gresham Machen gives this example. Christianity depends not upon a set of ideas, but upon an event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the beginning, the Christian gospel consisted of an account of something that happened. And when from the beginning, the meaning of the happening was set forth, there was Christian doctrine. Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. So when we take all these aspects together, we understand that Christian doctrine is what the Bible teaches us to believe about the meaning and significance of historical Christian events. For instance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, for I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now here we have all the elements of biblical doctrine. First, gospel events, historical events. Christ died, was buried, and was raised. Secondly, we have an interpretation of the significance of the events. 
Christ died for our sins. And thirdly, we have the source of that interpretation. Twice, Paul says, according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. So now that we understand what biblical doctrine is, let us move on to secondly, grasp the importance of doctrine for the true church. The importance of doctrine. Jude 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, in order for us to understand the full force of this passage, we must first understand its key central concept. The passage revolves around the words, the faith. In the context, the words, the faith, pistis, refers not to subjective faith, as in the faith that believers exercise, but rather objective faith, or the body of Christian doctrine that we believe in order to be saved. It can't refer to subjective faith, because the personal faiths of believers are not handed down once for all. Everybody believes at a different time. So how can everybody's faith be handed down once for all? It can't. This is not subjective faith. This is objective faith. It's the faith with the definite article. This is not subjective faith as in, I believe that you can do it. I have faith that you can do it. No, that would be subjective faith. This is objective faith, the specific faith. For instance, Galatians 1.23, people were saying of Paul, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. It's the faith objective. It's the same thing as the whole counsel of God in Acts 20.27 or the standard teaching in Romans 6.17. 2 Timothy 1.13 calls it the pattern of sound words. The faith is the body of revealed salvation truth, a set of orthodox biblical beliefs which has been handed down once for all by the apostles to the church as it was given to them by God. It was encapsulated in this book, the word of God, the Holy Scriptures, our Bible. It is the faith. Jude writes to this little church to tell them to contend earnestly for the true gospel, to contend earnestly for true gospel doctrine as it is contained in the word of God. The phrase contend earnestly is one word in the Greek. It means to struggle, to contest, to fight, to be in agony over. It was a word used commonly in the athletic contests of Greek games, where the athletes would contend, would fight, would struggle, would agonize to win the prize. And so Jude is telling this little church to contend earnestly for true gospel doctrine, to fight earnestly for true gospel doctrine, to agonize, to struggle, to defend true gospel doctrine. 
So Jude thinks that doctrine is important. The Bible thinks doctrine is important. The Holy Spirit thinks doctrine is important. God thinks doctrine is important. So let me ask you this. Do you think doctrine is important? You know, the world today, they are so offended by the concept of doctrine. Oh, doctrine. That's just so old school, so traditional. Well, the reality is, everyone has a doctrine. Every single life is governed by a set of beliefs. Every single person, whether Christian or non-Christian, is indoctrinated with something. Everybody has a doctrine. That's not the question. The question is, does your doctrine come from the gospel or from the world? That's the question. Does your doctrine come from scripture or from some other source? Are you indoctrinated by God or by someone else? That is the question. Oh, brethren, that we would know the absolute weight, the fearfulness of being led astray. Oh, that we would tremble at the thought of being led off the straight and narrow by man-centered philosophy, by heretical doctrine. More than ever, doctrinal purity is not a luxury. Doctrinal purity is an absolute necessity. Satan has employed a rather brilliant tactic to send people to hell. He has disseminated the lie that you can believe whatever you want and still go to heaven. That you don't even have to believe the Bible to still be a Christian. Brethren, we must get these things right. Souls are at stake with the accuracy of gospel doctrine. Thirdly, embrace the purposes of doctrine for the true church. Embrace the purposes of doctrine for the true church. And this is the passage we read at the beginning of our service. And I want to point out that the key to understanding this passage is to see that there is one major verb. There is one major action which governs the rest of this passage. And that is the action, the verb, to equip the saints to equip the saints. The rest of this passage flows out of this ministry of equipping. The word for equipping means to supply something that is lacking. To supply something that is lacking. So in the church, he, that is Christ, has given apostles and prophets, evangelists, Preachers and teachers, pastors and shepherds, these preachers of the word, these teachers of the word, these ministers of the word, these counselors of the word, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to supply something that is lacking for us to do the work of the ministry. Now, this assumes first and foremost, of course, that we are all lacking. We are all lacking in something. We all lack in our Christian walks. We all lack in our Christian lives. We are all lacking something. For instance, 
When Olivia and I were first married, I was trying to assemble a nightstand. And I won't say where this nightstand was from, but it's from a large furniture store which has four letters in its name. Its color schemes are blue and yellow, and it may or may not be Scandinavian. So I got this nightstand from this unspoken of furniture store, and I tried to assemble it. And I was trying to put it together, got all the tools out, putting it together, and something was just not right. And I just worked on it for hours and hours, poured over it. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little, but I worked on it, and I was looking at the instructions with a little stick figure man that has absolutely no words on it, trying to figure this nightstand out. And then I came to the realization, there's a piece missing. And so I went to this store, got the piece, and it was so much easier to assemble after that. It wasn't my fault. I was not equipped to build this nightstand. I was lacking something. I was lacking something, missing something, which prevented me from accomplishing my task. I was not equipped. Likewise, we can't build this thing called the church when we are lacking. We can't build this temple called the church when we are not equipped. We are all spiritually lacking something. We all have wayward thoughts. We all have unbiblical ideas. We all have skewed worldviews. We all struggle with sins and temptations. We are all imperfect in what we know and how we live. And the church exists to supply this lack. God has given to the church these ministers of the word to equip the saints through the ministry of the word. The church exists to equip the saints for the work of service. That is the predominant action of this passage. And there are four purposes that Paul gives for this equipping. First is building up. Building up. Paul says, building up the body of Christ. Paul has been using the metaphor of a temple, a building. The church is a building, an organic building, a building that is full of life. Church is a temple a living temple of the living God. Ephesians 2.20 tells us the foundation of this building, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we are built upon this foundation, this once-for-all foundation that has been laid for us through the prophetic and apostolic ministry of the word of God. And we build on top of this foundation building up here refers to either numerical growth or spiritual growth. We build up this temple, this temple called the church, by adding new stones, numerical growth, or putting the stones where they need to go, spiritual growth. It refers to either adding new people to the church or growing people who are already in the church. As Christ converts a dead man into a living stone, there needs to be masonry work done. There is a place for every living stone in the temple of God. But in order for that stone to be fitted where it needs to go, in order for that stone to function properly in the temple of God, it needs to be chiseled. 
it needs to be sanded. And so we as living stones in the temple of God need to be chiseled and sanded by the word of God. This also means when the word is truly preached, when the saints are truly equipped, there's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be some sanding and chiseling. There will be friction. There may even be pain. The word of God confronts us. The word of God rebukes us. The word of God corrects us. The word of God reproves us. But that is Christ's appointed means to put us where we need to go, to shape us how he wants us to be shaped in the temple of God. We are built up by the ministry of the word. Second purpose, unity. Paul says, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. The faith. Sound familiar? That's a reference to doctrine. Doctrine divides, but doctrine also unites. The faith here refers to getting our doctrine right. It refers to the accuracy of our knowledge of Christ the accuracy of our knowledge. First and foremost, we need to know Christ correctly and truly. First and foremost, we need to know Christ accurately. We need to know and understand before anything that there is only one way to know Jesus Christ, and that is to know him how he wants to be known according to his word. When we come to know Jesus Christ, we come to know him on his terms, not on our terms. There is only one Jesus Christ, and that is the Jesus Christ of the Bible. And so we preach the word, and so we teach the word, and so we labor in the word so that all the members of the church may have an accurate knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Only when we have true doctrine can we have true unity. Thirdly, Knowledge, verse 13, of the knowledge of the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, orthodox doctrine is absolutely essential. Right gospel doctrine is absolutely necessary. But true gospel doctrine is not enough. It is not enough. This doctrine must lead to the knowledge of the Son of God. However, this isn't just any knowledge. When Paul speaks of knowledge in this verse, he uses the Greek word epinosis, epinosis. The epinosis of the Son of God, the epinosis of Jesus Christ. Gnosis by itself refers to knowing facts and information about something. But when you add the epi onto it, epinosis, this refers to experiential knowledge personal knowledge, intimate knowledge. So while the faith refers to the accuracy of our knowledge of Christ, epignosis refers to the intimacy of our knowledge of Christ. For example, we all know facts and information about President Trump. We all know gnosis about President Trump. 
But do you actually know President Trump personally, intimately? Do you actually have epinosis of President Trump? Likewise, do you just know about Jesus? Do you know facts and information, theological head knowledge? Or do you actually know Jesus personally, intimately, exquisitely, in a relationship that you can feel to the depths of your soul? Do you have gnosis about Jesus without epignosis? Here's an example of gnosis versus epignosis. Perhaps my favorite professor in college was my Milton professor. Milton, of course, is called the poet of the Puritans. He wrote the greatest epic poem in English literature, Paradise Lost. It's a story of the fall in the Garden of Eden. And my favorite professor in all of college was my Milton professor. She was absolutely brilliant. She was four foot 11 and she packed a punch. She was quite a theologian. She knew all the theological works about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, man's free will. And she spoke five languages fluently. She knew German, French, Italian, Spanish, and English. And she also knew Greek and Hebrew, because in order to be a Milton scholar, you have to be a theologian. And so literally, there were some points in class where she would just weave in and out of different languages. She would just be giving her lecture and all of a sudden start speaking in Italian and start speaking in French just because they were so natural to her. In fact, one time, one of the students wrote their quiz in Italian. And this is how she walked in the next class, and this is how she spoke. She said, if anyone would like to write their quiz in Italian, it is fine by me. And that's how she spoke. So she was my favorite professor. And I used to talk to her after class because I was such a nerd. And she once told me, the greatest work that I have ever read on the Holy Spirit was a work that I accidentally found in the basement of the Vatican Library. And I read it in Italian. And I thought to myself, wow, how many of us have ever read a work on the Holy Spirit in the basement of the Vatican Library in Italian? Anyone? Crickets? No one, right? My point is, my professor knew all the theological works. She knew more theology than any of us in this room. In fact, I dare say, she knew more theology than all of us combined, and yet she was not a Christian. In fact, she was far from a Christian. She had all the gnosis of a Christian without the epignosis. She knew all the facts and information about the Bible, but she did not have a relationship, a personal, intimate epignosis, a personal, intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's not just about head knowledge. It's also about heart experience. It's not just about information. It's also about personalization. If we are satisfied with doctrine and gnosis alone, we will end up with intellectualism without intimacy. If we are satisfied with gnosis alone, we run the risk of dead orthodoxy. It's not about that. It's about epinosis. Do you know him? Do you know him? 
Brethren, let us strive for the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, not only to know Christ precisely, but personally, not only to know him accurately, but intimately. Do you know him? The fourth purpose of equipping is maturity. Maturity. We equip the saints so that we may be mature. Now, this is Paul's emphasis. He says in verse 13, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, we are no longer to be children. Verse 15, we are to grow up. It's not just a body that is unified, but a body that is growing, a body that is maturing. We are no longer to be like children. We are to be mature. Maturity here refers to doctrinal and spiritual stability. Children are gullible. Children are unstable. Children believe whatever you teach them. Children believe whatever you tell them. We are no longer to be like children. The church exists to keep us from staying like children. The church equips the saints so that we may grow up into doctrinal and spiritual stability. I haven't told a Conrad story in a while, so I feel like I'm overdue. So my friend Conrad is a missionary, and for many years he lived in China. And for many years he ministered in Beijing, where he planted an underground house church that started from zero to over 50 members. He raised up two Chinese nationals to serve as elders in this house church, and then he left the church as a standalone church with only Chinese nationals in it. He left it in pretty good shape. It was a young church, but he left it in good shape in the hands of these two elders. But a few years after Conrad left, there was a man in the church. He became very influential. He was very charismatic. He had a strong personality. He was very winsome. He was also very educated. He could read English very, very well. In fact, he was one of the few that could read English very, very well. In fact, he was so educated, he started to get into the theology known as King James-only theology. And if you know anything about King James-only theology, King James-only proponents teach that the only true Bible is the King James Bible. That's right. The authorized version of 1611 is the only true word of God. So any translation that you might have, the NASB, ESV, NIV, those are not only bad translations, those are not the word of God. This also applies to a translation into a different language. So for instance, a Bible translated into French is not the word of God. Bible translated into German, it's not the Bible. You know what else is not the Bible? A Bible translated into Chinese. And so this man, he came to believe in King James only theology and he began to teach it. He began to speak it. Unfortunately, a group of believers in the church left the church along with him. The church split ensued, and he established his own church. And of course, that's very interesting about this is, who becomes the sole interpreter of the scriptures in this man's church? He does. He's the only one who can read the King James Version. He's the only one who could read English. 
Now this, of course, has the makings now of a cult group. Brothers and sisters, this is a real-life story from a real-life church on the real-life mission field. It's a story which breaks your heart. Conrad told me that he now understands what the Apostle Paul felt when he was writing the letter to the Galatians. He told me he now understands what the Apostle Paul felt when he was writing the letter to the first Corinthians. And if you are sitting there thinking, oh, I mean, that'll, that'll never happen to us. We're Cornerstone Bible Church. You have missed the point. Brothers and sisters, we preach, we teach, we equip the saints, so that we will no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Those are the purposes for why we equip the church. Fourth and last, recognize variations of doctrine in the false church. Recognize variations of doctrine in the false church. Now, my goal here is not to give you an exhaustive apologetic, but rather I want to familiarize you with variations of doctrine in the false church. I want to start by asking, what makes up a cult? What makes up a cult? Well, there are four defining features of a cult. Wrong view of the Bible, wrong view of God, wrong view of salvation. So that is an unbiblical bibliology, an unbiblical theology, and an unbiblical soteriology. The fourth defining feature of a cult is it must have its origins in these errors. It must be founded upon these errors. From its inception, from its start, it must be founded in error. Anthony Hoykema in his book, The Four Major Cults, specifies Christian science, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventism as the four major cults. And we're going to be briefly, very briefly, going through each of these this morning. For the purposes of today and the sake of time, we won't actually be discussing Christian science, although I've given to you the chart that is reproduced here for your own reference. It's a little bit of a shame because I feel like Christian science is the most cultish out of these four groups and the most interesting if you have any questions, you can ask me afterwards. I just want to point out a few things from this chart before we proceed. Actually, I'll just point out one thing. Look at the origin. They're all founded in essentially the mid to late 1800s. So these groups are not very old. In fact, they're pretty young when you think about it in the whole scope of church history. Let's start with Mormonism. Let's look at Mormonism's view of scripture. Now what is abundantly clear with Mormons is the plain fact that if you talk to them, the Bible alone is not sufficient. They are not sola scriptura. They have added the Book of Mormon. The Articles of Faith, Article 8, written by Joseph Smith, which is still in use in the Mormon church today, says, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. That's pretty plain. Not only that, in addition to the Bible and the Book of Mormon, Mormons consider these books written by Joseph Smith 
doctrine and covenants and pearl of great price to be their scriptures. Their view of God? Mormonism denies the Trinity. So unlike Christian Trinitarianism, which is one God existing in three persons, Mormons deny the Trinity. Mormons are polytheists. They believe in multiple gods. Joseph Smith said in 1844, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage. Jesus Christ, a separate and distinct personage from God the Father. And that the Holy Ghost was a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. Three separate gods. They are polytheists. Let's move on to their view of salvation. Mormons vigorously reject salvation by faith alone. So just as they are not sola scriptura, they are not sola fide. You need to add good works to be saved. Articles 3 and 4 of their articles of faith. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. So notice, baptism is required for salvation. You must be baptized for the remission of sins. In order for you to have your sins taken away, in order for you to have your sins washed away, you need to be baptized. Again, Smith, in Doctrines of Salvation, defines salvation as this, that which man merits through his own acts, through life and obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. Let's move on to their origin. Mormonism started with an erroneous beginning. It was essentially founded by Joseph Smith in 1838. In 1820, when Smith was 14 years old, he received his first vision, so to speak, from an angel. And this angel told him that all other Christian denominations are hypocritical and corrupt. To quote the angel, the angel said, they are all wrong. In 1823, Smith received a second vision when the angel of Moroni appeared to him and revealed to him two golden plates. Two golden plates. Later in 1827, Smith claims that he dug up these plates from a hill near modern-day Rochester, New York. Supposedly, these two golden plates were written in ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. And this is before the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, so nobody knew what ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs actually looked like back then. These two golden plates were then translated into what is now known as the Book of Mormon. So just for an FYI, the angel of Moroni is the angel that you see on the top of every Mormon temple worldwide. So if you go to West LA, you go to Salt Lake City, you go to Hong Kong, you go to Mexico City, if you look at the top of the Mormon temple, you will see a golden figure. That figure is the angel of Moroni. 
From my dorm room at UCLA, I could open up my windows and see the angel of Moroni looking at me every morning from the temple in West LA. I did have a Mormon roommate in college as well, which led to some very interesting discussions. Now let's look at Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses call themselves witnesses because they are named after Isaiah 43.10, and this is their translation. You are my witnesses, declares Jehovah. Yes, my servant whom I have chosen. They're also called the Watchtower Society. The word Jehovah, and we don't have time to get into the detail about this, the word Jehovah is an anglicized version of the word Yahweh. Yahweh. So when you see in your Old Testament, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the word Lord in all capitals, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And throughout history, it has been translated or transliterated rather differently. One of those words is Jehovah, Jehovah. Their view of scripture is that their translation, the New World Translation, is the only legitimate Bible translation. So the New World Translation is the only legitimate word of God. That's important. That comes into play later on. Jehovah's Witnesses have a false view of God. Just like Mormons, they outright deny the Trinity. They are polytheists. They mainly believe in God the Father, whom they call Jehovah. He is the only one and true God. But there are many lesser gods. In fact, Jesus Christ is a lesser God to the Jehovah's Witnesses. Actually, Jesus existed before he became Jesus. He was otherwise known as Michael the Archangel. So in Jehovah's Witness theology, Michael the Archangel was born. He became Jesus. And when he was born on the earth, he was just a man, just a human being, not the God-man, just plain old human being. And when he resurrected, he received his divinity, and he became a lesser God lesser God. Of course, because they only accept the New World Translation, this allows them to conveniently read their theology into their version of the Bible. For instance, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. This is the only translation of the Bible that translates it that way, because it is an untenable translation. It is an impossible translation. They also believe that Jesus resurrected only spiritually and not physically. So to this day, for Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus Christ is still in the grave. They deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if that is true, brothers and sisters, just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we are of all men most to be pitied. They also teach that the Holy Spirit is not a person, just an impersonal force, a manifestation of God's power. They outright deny the Trinity. In view of salvation, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that salvation requires faith in Christ, association with God's organization. You have to be a Jehovah's Witness to be saved. And third, obedience to its rules. And one of those rules, of course, you will know, is to witness. They actually have to go door to door. And usually, you will find two of them coming to your door. One of them will be an older, experienced witness, 
and the other will be a younger, less experienced witness. Well, what about unbelievers? Well, to Jehovah's Witnesses, if you're not a Jehovah's Witness when you die, you don't go to hell. Actually, you are snuffed out of existence. You cease to exist. It's called annihilationism. They believe you are annihilated. To them, hell is not conscious torment or conscious punishment for sin, but rather annihilationism. You are snuffed out of existence. Its origin was founded in error. In 1879, Charles Taze Russell founded the Jehovah's Witness movement. Russell taught his followers, who were known simply as the Bible students at that time, that the second coming of Christ had already happened. In 1874, Christ came. Except he came invisibly, spiritually. He came, but nobody knew he came except, of course, Charles Taze Russell. Now, this, of course, is a shame because we read a precious verse this morning. Pastor Isaiah brought us through 1 Peter 1.13, the glorious revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Russell taught that Christ came to him in his second coming, and in 1914, God would destroy the Gentile kingdoms and govern the world through the Jehovah's Witnesses. So the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Christ has come and set up his final and full and ultimate kingdom in the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witnesses are then the ultimate realization of the kingdom of God. And this is why Jehovah's Witnesses do not have churches. They have what? Kingdom halls. This is also why Jehovah's Witnesses are not allowed to serve in the military. They are not allowed to acknowledge any country's flag. They are not allowed to sing a national anthem because their only kingdom is the kingdom of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Finally, let's look at Seventh-day Adventism. Now, having gone to a Seventh-day Adventist medical school, I feel like I understand Adventism more than any of the others. And I would have to say that out of all the cults, Seventh-day Adventism has come the farthest, meaning out of all these cults, they are the least cultish out of all of them today. Now, historically, they had many cultish aspects, but currently they have changed their position on major doctrines. So historically, they're very cultish. They call themselves Seventh-day Adventists because, of course, they worship on the seventh day, the Sabbath, or Saturday. They're seeking to bring back humanity to a pre-fall state, to bring humanity back to the Garden of Eden, to a pre-sin state. And so they obey the Sabbath. They don't believe in eating meat because in the Garden they did not eat meat. They don't believe in caffeine although I have no idea what relation that has to the garden, but they don't believe in ca caffeine and they obey the Sabbath, just like we said. Their view of scripture. They had a prophetess, Ellen White, who was considered to be inspired. In fact, in med school, I read one of her books, and it says, just as the prophets of old said, thus saith the Lord, so now I say, thus saith the Lord. She's equating herself with the authority of scripture. Their view of God. Some Adventist theologians have held to the position that Jesus had a fallen nature. It's called the post-fall nature of humanity. Their view of salvation is that they believe in rebaptism. That is, you cannot be baptized in any other church except the Seventh-day Adventist church. 
So if you were baptized in a Baptist church, if you were baptized in any other church, in Cornerstone Bible Church, you would have to be baptized in the Seventh-day Adventist church in order for your baptism to be legitimate. Now, you do realize that is cultish, right? We are the only ones that have it right, and so our baptism is the only one that is right. That's cultish. They also believe in annihilationism, just like the Jehovah's Witnesses. So that's where Adventism came from. But I'd just like to read their current views on these theological topics. Their view of scripture is that the Bible is scripture from the official website of Seventh-day Adventism today, as it is published today. They write, the Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, are the written word of God given by divine inspiration. Seventh-day Adventists accept the Bible as the only source of our beliefs. We consider our movement to be the result of the Protestant conviction, sola scriptura. That sounds pretty good. There's no more mention of Ellen White on their website. Their view of God is pretty solid. Again, from their official website, there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a unity of three co-eternal persons. It's not bad. Again, from their official website, their view on salvation. In Christ's life of perfect obedience to God's will, his suffering, death, and resurrection, God provided the only means of atonement for human sin so that those who by faith accept this atonement may have eternal life. Now you can see where I'm coming from when I say that they have come a long way from their origins. Speaking of their origin, they were founded by a man named William Miller in an event called the Great Disappointment in 1844. Now, the Great Disappointment is not a good name for the start of, well, any movement, to be honest with you. In 1844, William Miller predicted that Jesus Christ would come in his second coming on October 22nd, 1844. And when he did not come, they were greatly disappointed. And so Miller backtracked and he said, oh, I wasn't talking about the physical return of Jesus Christ. I was talking about the spiritual, invisible return of Jesus Christ. And thus was born Adventism. Advent is another word for coming. And just out of interest, Adventism is probably farther reaching than you realize. If anyone is familiar with our current Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Ben Carson, famous neurosurgeon and politician, he's Seventh-day Adventist. For all you sports fans out there, Magic Johnson was raised Adventist. And if you're familiar with baseball, Dr. Frank Job, who performed the first Tommy John surgery, was also Adventist. If you're not a sports fan, but you're a dessert fan, Little Debbie, you know Little Debbie, those little dessert packs that you pick up at the supermarket? Little Debbie was Adventist. And if you're not a dessert fan, but a breakfast fan, if you like Frosted Flakes, Eggo Waffles, Fruit Loops, Raisin Bran, Special K, Rice Krispies, Pop-Tarts, well, Will Keith Kellogg of Kellogg was Adventist. Why am I making the distinction about origins? Because the question often arises, what about Roman Catholics? Is Roman Catholicism a cult? After all, they worship idols, they venerate saints, they regard Mary as the mother of God. Their view of salvation is works righteousness mixed with faith. 
The Roman Catholic Bible actually has the Apocrypha in it, a group of non-inspired extra-biblical books. That should actually read Bible plus Apocrypha. Well, this is where the concept of origins comes into play. Roman Catholicism is called an apostate church. Apostate means to depart from the truth because Roman Catholics have their origin in the one true lowercase c Catholic church of Jesus Christ, but they have departed from the faith. So brothers and sisters, let today be a reminder for us that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. Doctrine makes a difference. Doctrine makes a difference between worshiping a true God and worshiping a false God. Doctrine makes a difference between heaven and hell. Doctrine makes a difference. P.T. Forsyth said, if we are not going to use our Bible, it is of no use building our churches. The church is here to equip the saints in life and doctrine. And so, brothers and sisters, let us never take for granted what we have. Let us never take for granted the word of God. Let us never take for granted the beauty of biblical doctrine. There is a doctrine worth fighting for. So come, let's fight for it. Let's pray. Father who is in heaven, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And by your word, you equip us and mold us and shape us and sanctify us. Lord, help us to know you through your word. Help us by your spirit to know you intimately and accurately. Lord, we pray as we partake of this meal now that you would help us to partake of it with an attitude and a heart of thanksgiving. Help us to eat and drink to your glory. Help us to encourage one another in the communion of the saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.